Hello and welcome to Africa Tech Summit Connects, sharing insights from across the African tech scene. Today's episode was recorded at Africa Tech Summit London. Hello everyone, really great to see you all here today. Today I'm joined by an incredible panel who will be talking about capital raising and particularly, you know, initial public offerings within the context of London and specifically for African technology companies. So my name is Yvonne Bajela. I've been investing on the continent since 2015. And around the time that I started investing, there were no exits. Today we've seen quite a few exits. Um, however, the conversation still remains around the IPO prospects within um, Africa. And so we will be talking in depth on that topic today. And yeah, I'm looking forward to this discussion. I think I'll start with Ariel. I'd love for you to introduce yourself. Hi, everyone. Thank you for staying. <laughs> um, I'm a partner in the London office of global law firm Goodwin. We focus on helping growth companies from the early stage across the life cycle and exit um, as well, their investors as well, um, via the public markets. Um, I have a particular focus in tech and life sciences, and I lead the UK equity capital markets and public company advisory practice here in London. Yeah, good afternoon, everybody. So Simon Olsen, I'm a partner in Deloitte in London, and I lead our Africa Equity Capital Markets Group, which is a team of about 30 people spread across London and the African continent. <laughs> and we've worked on about 25 deals of African businesses listing internationally, mainly London, or indeed locally on the continent in the last five years. Uh, my name is Frida Singoma. I'm a fund manager at Octopus Investments. Um, Octopus uh, is the largest VC managers in the UK. Um, we run about 13 billion assets under management. Um, most of it's focused on private equity. The side that I am on is taking companies from private to IPO. Um, we've got AIM VCTs as well as other mandates that invest across the UK. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Uh, Chuba Zanwa. Um, I, uh, I run the uh, investment bank for the Sub-Saharan Africa region uh, for Bank of America, uh, which I recently joined uh, about seven months ago. Um, my background, I spent about over f uh, 14 years uh, primarily raising kind of equity capital, more on the public, but also private side for, for clients across uh, EMEA. Uh, including Africa, where uh, I've been fortunate to be involved in um, most of the major uh, African IPOs in London and uh, looking forward to the conversation. Thanks, Yvonne. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, my name is Neil Shire. I look after the technology sector here at the London Stock Exchange. Delighted to have you all. Um, we've seen about 53 tech and tech-enabled IPOs in three years. Uh, we've got our largest IPO due in about two weeks. Uh, no, no pressure there, Simon. Um, it's going to be a good one, uh, cab payments, and um, looking forward again to the discussion. Now, given that we are at the London Stock Exchange, I thought that you know, it would be the best way to start off by you just laying the context in terms of the opportunity that you see here for African companies listing in the UK specifically. So what, what do you need to succeed here? I guess the first point is, we love unicorns and decacorns as much as the next person, but you don't really need to be one. An African unicorn coming to London would be a top 30-ish uh, tech company, right? It would walk into the FTSE 250. Uh, very different picture in other markets. You know, the S&P sort of starts at about 4 billion. NASDAQ starts at about 20 billion. Um, here, people will care and they'll notice. And we go to the next slide, please, Mike. Here we've got a uh, scattering of tech companies that have come to London. I think the standouts you'll see here 
is that if you look at the revenue line, second from the bottom, you know, we've had companies with, you know, 15, 70 million um, dollars of revenue uh, go on and do amazing things. Cape started, came from Israel. You know, that started as a sort of $250 million um, market cap business, um, was recently acquired for about $1.8 in, in more recent times, we've had Wise at $550 million. We're not going to say no to big businesses like Wise, like Cab, um, but you can do amazing things. And depending on your size, there's always investors. Uh, we've got money on the on the panel here in in Freda. <laughs> if you're looking for a check, um, she might be able to help you with that. Um, but there's a lot of work that goes into the the IPO processes, and we'll, we'll dig into all of that. If we just flick on to to the next slide as well, and um, keep on going, Mike. So who who invests in London? Right, we're international. In fact, the weight of overseas capital probably outweighs local capital. We've got some fantastic investors. Octopus, where Freighter is, um, M&G, Schroeder's, many more. Um, and we see all the big US funds here. So you don't need to go to America to find these funds. And I think because of this, um, you know, we, we support international companies. If you look at um, how international IPOs are performed in the States, it's not very well. If, in the UK, it's very balanced. So what's happened um, to UK companies that have gone public? Um, if you read the press, you'd think there's been hundreds of uh, UK IPOs going public. There's only been 30 across all sectors in the last 10 years. 22 of those, which is shown here, have raised more than $100 million. And only three have been VC-backed tech companies. Have we got any Manchester United fans in the room? I'm a Liverpool fan. That hurts a little bit. But Manchester United is one of three companies that is, that is up. Um, the, the rest have, have not performed. Um, so, so just bear that in mind when um, you're, you're thinking about where, where to go. Okay, if we go to the next slide. <laughs> right, IHS. Um, true story. There's a fund manager called Randy Barron, real name, um, called me up and said, Neil, there's this fantastic towers business in America. Uh, it, looks, it looks pretty cheap compared to Helios. And um, you know, un unfortunately, uh, look, that, that's just struggled. If we go to the next page. Um, you know, Jumia, many of you will be familiar with as well, you know, a similar story. If we keep on going, right? Airtel, fantastic story for London, just shows you what the art of the possible is. If we go to the next one as well, Helios, yes, it's down you know, 19%, but actually in this environment, that's not bad. If you look at some of the write downs we've seen in the sector, if we go to the next one, that's the one we're waiting for. And, um, you know, th there's lots of slides here. Liquidity comes up a lot. In fact, you know, London, if you, if you make the right adjustments, you know, it's very easy to look at the S&P and look at trading volumes. They're, they're sky high. But you know, 60% of the S&P is Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, Tesla, you name it. You've got to look at companies on a like-for-like -like basis. And actually, when you adjust for that, liquidity is not too bad. We've got some slides on valuation as well, but maybe we'll, we'll come to those in a little while. Cool. Thank you very much, Neil, for setting the scene. Um, I think that, you know, we'll come back on the commercial, particularly, you know, London, why London should be considered as a destination for companies looking to IPO. But I think what I want to now get into um, is with Ariel around the, the regulatory regime and, and why London is, is really the place to be, just given the changes that have recently taken place. I know you have a few slides as well to take us through. Yeah, so there's probably one that we could just throw out there because a lot has, I guess the summary is that London is making significant changes to the UK listing regime um, to enable, to really 
improve effectiveness and competitiveness and really target the growth company, particularly tech and, and life sciences companies. And I've been practicing for almost 17 years. I've not seen the level of changes that we've seen in the last 18 months across my entire career, just to sort of explain some of the, the, the sort of the level of um, boldness I think London is trying to exert in, in, in sort of really moving away and from a more prescribed rules-based um, regime to one that's much more based on disclosure, which is what NASDAQ is quite similar to. So actually in terms of eligibility, and it's, it's difficult to kind of go through all of the changes, I, that's probably a panel in and of itself, but a couple of things I'll, I'll just highlight in terms of some big changes. On the main market, we obviously have the growth market, the alternative investment market, but um, we also on the main market, there was this premium listing and a standard listing. That Those two segments are now being merged. Um, there's a, now permission of a dual class share structure, which is of a great appeal to founder-backed companies. That was something that NASDAQ permitted. London wasn't, didn't permit that on the premium segment. That is now permissible here in, in the UK as well. We reduced the free float from 25% to 10%. Um, and uh, I think, and then on the secondary capital raising, there's now an increase in the percentage up to 20%. That can be raised, um, 20% of a company's share capital that can be raised non-preemptively, which means you don't have to go for, to get your shareholder consent. In terms of what's coming in the pipeline, I'll just highlight in terms of reform of the prospectus regime. One of the, um, and my firm, we take companies both to the US and, and, and the UK, so I can have a totally unbiased uh, conversation about this and unvarnished, but, but, but one of the negatives, if I had to say in the past when I was having com uh, conversations with companies about the pros and cons between the two regimes was the, the being able to tap back into the markets quite easily and how, how often you needed to prepare a prospectus, which obviously is quite costly and time, and time consuming for companies. That regime is being completely overhauled. Um, the significant transactions regime is also being significantly overhauled, so it's going to be much easier to do M&A, for example, without having to get um, shareholder um, approval and all those kind of cases. It's a lot to cover, but I think the message is, and feel free to come speak to me if you want to, a deeper dive in any of this, but really the message is that coming to market in London is the delta between sort of eligibility and, and the process is not, is, is not that big between um, um, you know, London and, and New York, and it's moving much more towards a disclosure-based regime. And what I would, and we'll come to this, I think, really is think about it from particularly founders and CEOs and uh, out there, you know, what life looks like for you post-IPO, and we'll kind of come to that. And I know there's always this focus on valuation and day one, you know, but what does life look like for you post-IPO? And that is that is where the big difference is between London and New York, and I'll leave it there because I know we'll come to kind of unpick that in a second. Oh, thank you very much, Ariel. Uh, Simon and Chuba, I guess when you're working with clients to think through IPO plans, when it comes to London, when it comes to the US, what's some of the things that you take into consideration from that perspective? Okay, <laughs> neither wants to speak. Um, no, the first thing I'd say to anybody is you have to recognize an IPO is going to be a big undertaking for your business, and that's true of an IPO anywhere in the globe. <clears throat> If you speak to a lot of people, they'll say an IPO takes six to nine months. And that's true from the point you appoint all the advisors, you appoint all your banks and you really get going. For you as a business, you've got to recognise you need to prepare for that. So for many businesses, an African business in particular, I find, you need to get going probably a year in advance of that as a business to start your IPO project, start getting ready. And if you take one thing away today is a big project, start early. I think for African businesses in particular, I'd highlight two other common, common themes I see, which is both the strength of listening from the continent, but also to think about the first is you know, 
institutional investors have differing levels of understanding of the continent. But you will probably need to spend more time educating investors about the geographies that you operate in than, say, a Western business would come into the market. So, for example, we worked on the IP of Helios Towers, very heavily involved in DRC in Tanzania. They had to invest a lot of time educating investors around the demographics, the economics, the politics, the currencies of those countries, and how that represented back into their business. So just expect to have to have a very, very well-honed, well-defined equity story that you're going to give to institutions and expect to spend additional time educating them. I think the other feature I would always draw out is we have to recognise that many investors, right or wrongly, will have a perception of Africa as high risk in terms of fraud, bribery, corruption, these areas. Therefore, your business has to have the highest levels of corporate governance has to have a really good culture around anti-bribery and corruption and be seen to be doing that. And again, that can be perceived very well. Again, we worked on Airtel Africa, worked on Helios Towers, uh, we worked on Liquid Telecom when they did their initial bonding. You know, all of them really hold themselves out as having those very high levels, which I think is important. Yeah, yeah I mean, <clears throat> maybe just add uh, a couple of uh, observations on the topics that um, we've discussed so far. I think the first thing to say is uh, my personal view is that, and apologies if there's anyone in the press in the room, but I feel the uh, the recent sort of rel relatively negative press on London uh, mm -hmm. in terms of the uh, uh, sort of the amount of activity is, 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 has gone a little bit too far. Um, frankly, IPO activity globally has, has slowed down and I, I, there's nothing specific to do with, with London. It's more of a function of, uh, you know, risk appetite from, from investors. I think the great thing is that we're, we're now seeing sort of uh, green shoots of recovery, both in the US and in Europe and in London specifically with a few transactions. So that's quite encouraging for uh, the coming months. I think with respect to preparation and more in the context of the US and UK, what I would say is in terms of uh, jurisdictions, the actually the, the rules are generally converging, right? So in terms of distinction between the US and, and UK, um, as such, um, there's probably less of a nuance. I mean, there are, there are things here and there, but in, in a general, um, in terms of the, the things that matter, um, I think Simon talked talk through a, a number of those things in terms of early preparation, investor education, those, those apply on either side of the Atlantic. Uh, the one thing I would say is that, uh, certainly in my experience uh, working with issuers on both sides of the Atlantic, um, is, is that European um, uh, European IPO processes, uh, which includes the UK, does give you a little bit more flexibility in terms of what you can do educating investors um, early on in the process. And that goes a long way to getting uh, investors to commit um, earlier in the process and have the visibility on the outcome of a process prior to it becoming public. And I think you're probably going to see some of those elements play out on, on the transaction, which is currently in the market with CAB. Uh, so, yeah, no, very optimistic, I think, generally around the um, potential of the Africa tech ecosystem uh, in an IPO context and in the medium term. Okay, well, can I just add to that? Um, I think that's a 
two things yeah, on sure. the iCovid thing, just from a legal side. Sorry, the lawyer in the room. But um, so timing-wise, I think is really important. So I think people think, oh, the IPO window shut at the moment. I shouldn't be thinking about an IPO. But actually, there's so much preparation, and that's the earlier you start preparing, the easier trans it is as a tra to transitioning to being a public company. And I think what I've certainly seen in my experience working with growth companies and their investors is that transition is quite a, a big one, particularly you know. Even more so, I think, if you go to the U.S., quite frankly, if I can say. but And they struggle with that um, because for a lot of companies that haven't been in existence um, for, for very long or haven't had um, you know, a long runway of, of corporate governance sort of policies and procedures in place and risk management systems, information management systems in place. So I think thinking about it a good 18 to 24 months away is the right time to be starting to think about pre-IPO readiness. And the second thing I would just add to that is it, all of that, a lot of the IPO readiness is actually would be relevant for an M&A exit too. So if you're not if you're not in quite sure, you know how to exit. A lot of having good corporate governance, being ready, starting to live life almost like a public company, having good internal audit practices and all the rest of it will stand you in good stead for an M&A exit just as much as an IPO. Yeah. So it's not time wasted. Yeah, nice. And I'm just, just going to add to that from an investor point of view, is that many investors, particularly ones that you know are looking at the sort of micro cap end of of, of the market are always willing to do early looks. So, I mean, because companies, if they're ready to IPO, what they're actually doing is getting investor ready. So you don't want to do all the preparation and then we see them and say this thing is not investable. Um, so I think there needs to be more collaboration between all the ends of the ecosystem. And, uh, and, I, and from what I hear and what we do is that we're willing to look at things a year in advance and give feedback to the brokers or the nomads and say, okay, maybe they need to do this in the meantime. Or So it, I, we all need to work together to make sure that the IPO process is working smoothly. And, and that early look process is a fundamental difference to the U.S. process. Yeah. Um, and Sorry, Chiba, but if the banks in the U.S. who are very worried about litigious, you know, it's a much more litigious environment and therefore do not want to go speak to investors earlier in the process when a prospectus hasn't been fully baked. So I think that's one of the benefits of the um, you know educa investor education process that we have, which also feeds into the price discovery um, process, which I know is going to yeah. lead to what Neil's going to say on valuation. Yes, because it also tempers um, the company's valuation expectations yeah. as well. It makes it more realistic. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I did want to unpick that a bit more. So um, we at Local Globe invest at the very earliest stages and when companies are, you know, reaching that growth stage, we tend to tell them to think about IPO two, three years in advance and start thinking about governance, who you have on your board and so on. Frida, I'd love to hear from your perspective how you go about preparing your companies for that transition to IPO. If you could just unpick that in a bit more detail. We don't prepare them. So we invest when they float. So we don't invest in private companies. The other part of Octopus so does, but we, we don't. But but we do. I mean, when when we see early looks and we're really interested in investing in them, um, we we generally sort of give them feedback on how the market functions. Because what we're finding is a lot of the broken community seem to have stood back in terms of advising companies on what to expect once they become a public company. So um, in terms of the process when it's private, it can take up to six months. So we can see something 12 months in advance and then six months before it sort of starts, get, starts to get going and then valuation sort of conversations start coming up. So we do like to go on site visits because you actually want to know what you're investing in. And at that point, we get to speak to the management team one-to-one -one and so, sort of start talking to them about what their expectations are of being a public company. 
Because a lot of management teams just don't know. And they're expecting, you know, oh, I've got a hundred million valuation. That's what I'm floating at. It should be about one billion in two, three years. That tends to not happen. Or even their expectations of investors. We don't hold their hands. We don't find you new board members. We can advise and say, listen, maybe you should look to get an industry board member in or someone with PLC experience. And we might know that as sort of the micro cap end of the market. We've We've got quite a few networks, not just with brokers, but also with executives out there. So I might recommend this is the composition of your board that will make it attractive to investors and um, and sort of guide them in that way. But we don't hand we don't hand hold them. We're expecting you guys to do it and the broken community to do it or the private equity that's sort of coming out of it should have done it, if you see what I mean. Or the banks. I mean, if I get to, to add a couple of things, uh, I think the very... Uh, Valid points. I mean, two years out, um, I think what we would typically be telling issuers, I think particularly from, from this space, I think uh, one is the more you can already be behaving like a public company yeah. in a private context, the more, the smoother the, the, the transition. And that comes from uh, a perspective of, you know, actually your IR function, right? I think there's some private companies in this ecosystem that, that do it really well uh, already in terms of not just engaging with private investors, but actually regularly engaging with public side investors and, and analysts, research analysts, which are an important part of the um, price discovery process in a public market context. Uh, to take them through the journey. Um, and so when you come to an IPO, people are already familiar with your story. They've seen your revenues grow from you know, 100 million to 200. And, and therefore, it's easier for them to buy into the next stage of growth, right? So the more you're doing that, and that comes to everything from actually you know, attending conferences, having one-on-one meetings, to actually just the state of your website and you know, getting the right sort of, uh, you know, communication experts to, to help you uh, with, with that process in terms of the presentation of your company on the internet. That's really important. Mm-hmm. It's more important than people sometimes think. Um, I think the second thing comes to uh, thinking about valuation in a public market context. And if I may say, I think this is probably one of, going to be one of the, um, uh, the, the biggest hurdles for tech companies that have raised funding in the last couple of years, globally, not Africa specific, given where valuation levels were, you know, um, you know, a couple of years ago versus where the public market is trading today. And that's probably one of the reasons you haven't seen many tech uh, IPOs globally um, in recent months, because there's still a quite big divide between where shareholders invested mm. versus where, what the market is willing to pay. And so the closer you are to IPO, the more you need to start to think about um, getting the mindsets from all the stakeholders and your shareholders to, in terms of expectations around valuation levels in the public market context. And, and that ultimately drives how you think about the business model. Just on that point of evaluation, I think in the last few years, as you said, valuations have become inflated and there's often been the pressure for companies to achieve unicorn status. How important do you think it is for companies to aspire to that unicorn status before thinking about IPO? I, I could take that. I think, um, I mean, I've done IPOs of companies 
you know, as small as $400 million market cap, you know, up to, you know, quite a few billion dollars. And uh, I think it's, it's probably fair to say the smaller you are, the, the, high, you know, the harder it is to get attention from a broader range of investors. But actually, majority of IPOs are smaller IPOs. Um, so, you know, small IPOs do, do get done. Um, so I think it probably speaks more to, um, you know, the, the state of the business, not just in terms of the, the, the story that you're telling and the predictability of the story going forward, uh, which is important in the, in the, in the public market context, being able to manage the market's expectations around the delivery of your numbers. Um, and, and also speaks to all of the things that you've heard in terms of corporate governance, readiness, all of those things are, are really, are, are probably more important than, than size. But yes, bigger is generally better, um, especially in a difficult market because, uh, investors such as Frida, they, they love to be able to get in and out of stocks, <laughs> um, when the market is more volatile, right? Um, whilst they're obviously very much long-term investors, but yeah. they like to have the flexibility. I, I perhaps wouldn't blame you on Frida, I'd blame you on her risk, uh, risk departments would prefer her to, to invest in companies that, she, that are easier to trade, and that yeah. speaks to larger companies. Yeah. But certainly smaller companies can, can still very much um, tap the market. Yeah. Maybe I think you have yeah, something to add to that. Sure. So look, I, I've shown Freda's colleagues many a small company, you know, twenty million pounds of market cap, thirty million pounds over the years. Yeah. That for that early look process is great. You go and see them a year before the deal, and they say, Neil, great business, but you know, no one knows um, that the public markets. This is you, fix X, Y, and Z, and you know, we'll, we'll be interested in this. And I think there's an unhealthy obsession with becoming a unicorn or a, or a decacorn. Um, and, and also thinking about IPOs as an exit for, for you as founders, an IPO is really just the next growth round, right? Um, except typically you're playing in ordinary shares. Um, you know, I, I love VCs. We do a lot, you know, <laughs> but this is just an alternative path, right? And you guys play a fantastic role in building companies to a certain stage, right? Uh, where, where investors need to be a bit more hands on. And if you take what Frida does day in, day out, it's a little bit more hands off, right? That you might have, you know, 200 companies in your portfolio, you don't have time to spend uh, with each one the same way that you do, Yvonne, you know, to dig in, in into the weeds. And it's really horses for courses. There'll come a point when you're at that level of maturity where, you know, the profile of being public, you know, makes sense. And uh, Ariel and Chuba, you spoke about you know, the, the process and how it's similarities between, you know, gearing up for an M&A sale are very similar. Um, there's a great podcast by Reid Hoffman, IPO versus M&A. Um, on the the Greylock series, go, go check it out. Um, when I was doing M and A, um, you know, a lot of the the work that you did preparing a company is very similar to um, you know, preparing for an IPO. I think IPO just gives you optionality. Yeah. So I just add something on the smaller company. I'm generally a, a bigger is better kind of girl, but um, but I think um, the unique thing about London is is the growth market. So AIM, yeah. and that is a very different market to Nasdaq. So NASDAQ kind of holds itself out as a growth company, but there are 3,300 companies on NASDAQ, most of which are in the billions in terms of market cap. So when you go to, 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 to that's not a growth market in the real sense of AIM, for example, which 
sweet spots from around 225 million to 150, for example, whereas much smaller kind of market caps that enable companies to access the public markets at an earlier stage in their life cycle and then graduate to the main list or graduate to NASDAQ, which has happened uh, for a number of companies as well. Um, so, so I think that's what's unique about London. And I actually think AIM is a great market to come on to for a growth company that wants to access the public markets earlier in their, in their session. You don't have to be an enormous company to come to market and, and, and AIM. Yeah, I mean, I've been an investor in AIM since 2000. And so AIM started, what, 1995? Five, yeah. Um, and the funds we had at Close Brothers were the cornerstone funds for AIM. Um, and we've we've seen, we saw ASOS when it was very small, for example. It started at, what, 10 million? Yeah, it started at 10 million, and we saw them, we saw Mears when it was and very small. And they jumped small. up to the main market. And they, they, ju- they jumped down to the main market. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I, I'm definitely not the bigger is better person because we invest in, in pieces of paper. I mean, some of the companies that used to come to AIM were cash shells and then they'll find a business to invest in and then we, we followed through. So we're long-term investors, you know, anything from five years, 10 years, even longer. Actually, we've held some of our companies in the portfolio for about 15 years. I think it's also, it's it's about expectations as well. I know everyone wants to be a unicorn. I would too if I float to my company. <laughs> but at the end of the day, not everybody is. Very few companies are unicorns. And we shouldn't detract people from actually not even going down the private equity route for too long, but saying, let's look at what's happening on the public markets now when we're a 50 million market cap or 100 million market cap, because there are funds that invest, specialize yeah. in on, on AIM. And we do, I mean, once companies move up to down to the full list, we, that's when we start to begin to sell them because all the tax reliefs come off. But but we, we can be long-term investors. So you can stay on AIM till you're you know, a, a billion uh, pound company. And as well, if, you, if you're if you a small company, so we follow on investments and it's all about expectations. If you come to us and say, listen, we're only 50 or 100 million market cap, but we think we can achieve this in the next year and we'll need more money once we've achieved that. But this is what, this is a strategy, this is the strategy you're funding today. Then in a year's time, we will keep funding that if we still believe in you, the dynamics are the same um, because it's a relationship that you build with the companies that you invest in so it's also worth considering because you know private equity and vc at some point they might not suit you anymore they want the money back they want 10 times their money back (laughs) but we don't have that we're patient investors basically so we don't want you we don't like companies where we we give you say 10 million our ticket size is 4 million in the VCTs but we don't like to hear that companies have raised 30 million and suddenly they want to run before they can walk because they feel suddenly I'm a listed company and I should be a unicorn in a few years no there are patient investors out there and we want to grow with you our funds grow with you we raise money every year and um, and there are a lot of VCTs out um, um, in, in London that are investing in AIM um, so I think it's attractive AIM is the biggest growth capital market Pretty much in in Europe, or yes, the world. In, in the world, yeah. and seventy um, percent of the tech companies in London are on AIM. Yeah, um, great story. One of your companies actually is uh, Keyword Studios. Um, yes. So they started life in uh, on AIM in 2013, 50 million pounds in market cap. It's about two billion now. We share a chairman um, in Don Robert. Um, they've done, I think, 
64 acquisitions yeah. um, worldwide, some financed by cash, some using that paper. Yeah. They've been able to hire internationally as a result. They've been able to come back to market and raise money. And that's one of the beauties of public markets is that we've seen IPOs done in 10 weeks. No, no, no pressure, guys. But okay. yeah, that, that's the benchmark, right? <laughs> that, you know, that sometimes you can move incredibly quickly. But more so, you know, just moving away from the IPO is what happens, what, what about life thereafter? Yeah. You know, um, some companies, PCI Power, remember, did a follow-on from board decision to cash in the bank, two and a half weeks. And that's really how fast you can move sometimes in public markets where the brokers know where Frida and her friends are hiding and you know, how much cash they've got yeah. in, the, in their suitcases. You know, Ariel's made sure that all the docs are, are up to speed. You know, Tuba's guys and girls are ringing the phones and um, you know, Simon's made sure that they're not going to have a, a profits warning, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and you can act really, really quickly. And sometimes because we, because we know we're on the growth side, we keep in touch with our companies. And sometimes they might think, oh, we'll raise money next year. Our share price is low. You know, our investors might worry about the fact that they have to write down the investment. A lot of the times we don't worry about that because, again, if you believe in the company, if you believe in their growth strategy and you can see a path to profitability, say, if they're loss making, we're prepared to invest now because it means that you're going to get there in the time frame that you want to rather than hanging back. And so follow investments are important for us. And we're having to create that pipeline now, now that markets are really depressed. We're going to our companies and saying, hang on, it looks like you might need 5 million or 10 million. How about you think about fundraising? And it could be with just us. It could be with a couple of other sort of VCT investors. So the opportunities for follow-on fundraisings, we have followed on fundraising for a lot of our companies in the portfolio. And as well, it's worth looking at when you look at who you want to um, um, have as an investor in your company at, at Octopus on the quoted side, because we've got other mandates that invest in anything up to AstraZeneca. And so they don't have to necessarily invest in 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 um in qualifying companies they can be follow-on investors so as soon as it becomes non-qualifying we have other funds that have seen it grow up because we're all in the same team and say actually that's really attractive and keywords is one of them so it's across all our portfolios i think one of the other factors impacting businesses around when to ipo and how big should i be is actually now the relative cost of private funding so for the last decade, a trend we've seen, and this applies to African businesses and more broadly, is businesses coming to market later when they're bigger. And the reason for that has been readily available private funding. And that's been caused by near zero interest rates, as we all know. Now, clearly that's coming to an end. So all of a sudden, public, public money starts to look cheaper again. Yeah. So actually, I think for businesses in the room, coming to market earlier, actually, I think it might become more relevant again. Yeah. And that's, I think, where this unicorn debate started. There's a lot of our advice, probably for the last decade, a lot of businesses has been, look, you may as well get private money until you're a unicorn, because frankly, it's, it's readily available. Yeah. I think that has changed a lot in the last year, and we're still seeing that play out. And I think it also plays out into the UK versus US debate mm. as well. So you can come to market, I think, in the UK at a much much smaller. Yeah. And if you're, when looking at the US, for example, there there is a threshold at which 
the cost of actually listing in, in New York is just so significantly high um, in terms of you're paying double um, fees to the bank. Sorry about that, Nancy, but I, we are friends, but uh, I know I'm bashing a little bit. But, um, but the, the, the fees are higher, legal fees are higher in the US as well. Um, the, the ongoing costs of maintaining your listing are significantly higher. The accountancy fees are much higher as well. So actually, all of us charge a lot more, let's be honest about it. But but the DNO insurance is almost about 10 times higher um, in the US because of the likelihood of you being sued, I think. You guys have a good stat about this, don't you? I think there have been three class um, action lawsuits in the UK since 2010, but 310 alone in 2021 in the US. So it's just a completely different um, um, litigious environment, you know, litigation environment, which feeds into costs um, and and research coverage is a struggle for a lot of companies, for example, or you know that are if you're sub two billion, you're quite small on Nasdaq. Or if you're sub two billion, you're still a really sizable company, particularly on AIM, for example, and certainly the main market as well. So I, th- I think the bigger versus better, um, or how big you need to be, actually, is, is a better way of saying that, really actually d- differ, is a different conversation yeah. here in London. Um, Neil, now one thing you highlighted in your slides was some of the IPOs that hadn't performed well post-IPO. So I wanted to get your perspective on what you think could have been done differently, if anything at all. Um, I think it really boils down to you know how companies, founders, bankers, ecosystem manage uh, expectations, right? If you start off on the wrong valuation on day one, you start here, we won't name names, and you're down here, everyone's lost money, that's a really bad situation to be in. It's hard to recover from that as well. So our advice is always to be sensible, right? Treat this as a win-win, right? And it's okay. Everyone should make money along the way. That means taking a slight haircut on the IPO, that's fine. Don't get obsessed with that day one valuation, right? Mm-hmm. You're going to move on from that. It's you know, what happens thereafter. And, and if I were to sing, sort of um, single out the, the issues with the IPOs that haven't worked, I think that's right at the top of the list. The second is preparation, right? We've seen companies hire IR directors like uh, a week before their IPO. Don't do that, right? Find your board members early, prepare. Yes, sometimes it can be costly, but I think the better prepared you are, the more conversations you have, the, um, the, the better place you'll be to succeed. Um, it's really common sense stuff when we step back from it, but um, yeah, it's, it's just these fundamental errors sometimes that, that happen. And sometimes, look, people get it wrong. You know, um, We've seen investors you know, pile in, they get really excited about a company. Um, they might follow their friends. Right? And they, we see this in VC land as well. Like, oh, what have I bought? Um, so again, I think what we've got in London is this great investor um, education process where you can spend time with investors and it's much as about you selecting them as they are selecting you. Um, so definitely use that. Yeah. And just to follow on with what Neil was saying about you know hiring directors just before you float, I think the common mistake we've seen over the last couple of years is, is um, hiring finance directors right before you float. Right. And so the person who's been actually managing the accounts forever, you know, the financial controller, suddenly he's got this boss that doesn't really know that much about the business. And so you see this finance director, you know, who appears in front of you, doesn't know very much. And within two, three months, he's resigned. And a finance director resigning just after a float is actually the worst signal ever. And, um, and companies make that mistake. It's better to know who's you know, got the financial discipline within your business, either promote the financial controller who's been there, the finance manager, or find somebody where you can build a relationship with them and they get to know the sort of nitty-gritty and knittings of the business before you sit in front of investors and present them. 
examples have you seen? Ariel, you mentioned that it's ideally best to pre- prepare 18, 24 months before you actually think about going to IPO. If you could share some real life examples of companies that you've seen it doing really well, how far in advance should companies really be thinking about that? Because I often think it's something that's put on the back burner and companies rush to do it when they're thinking of, of actually going to IPO. But ideally, you want to do it as early as possible. So just great to hear your perspective on that. I know you'll have a couple of thoughts on the on the financial side, but but so I think there's sort of five key areas, and I won't pick up on financials, but where I see companies get it wrong or not appreciate how much time it takes to, to prepare. Um, one is, I think, what um, Yvonne's already picked up on as well in terms of um, board composition. So there, there, are some, there are requirements as to what your board looks like at the time you come to IPO. So there's sort of independence requirements, there's requirements for your committees, there are requirements that your audit chair has a financial background. There are now requirements in the UK, to, it's a complier explain requirement, to have diversity on your board. So 40% of your board needs to be women, uh, one of your senior um, independent directors or um, one of your executive positions needs to be a woman. Your senior management needs to have, um, you know, a, a, your pipeline of female um, senior managers needs to be there. You need to disclose that in your prospectus as well. So there's requirements and also you need one, at least one director of an ethnic minority background. So there's, there's requirements and that's not easy to pull together, you know, four, three, you know, three or four months even before. <laughs> I've seen it, you know, even weeks before admission and, that, and you know, getting directors on board who are reading the prospectus the night before admission is totally suboptimal. Um, so I think board composition is definitely something that needs some really good thinking through, particularly if you've got investor directors on the board, look, uh, thinking about how the board looks like when maybe when they roll off, for example, uh, what your independence criteria, and also what the mat- your skills matrix looks like on your board, because all of this will come under scrutiny at the time of the IPO. And that's definitely something that you could be doing 18 to 24 months out. Um, secondly, um, where I see a company slightly getting this or uh, mistiming um, the preparations around this is ESG strategy. It is now something that pretty much and again, the investors here and the banks will probably be able to comment um, more, but there's really a question you will get. Um, and and in, when I looked at sort of the 2021 IPOs, about a third of um, companies that came to market had a separate ESG committee um, and had separate disclosure in their prospectus around their ESG strategy. So actually thinking about that, so reverse engineering in a way, like what do you want your equity story to be in your prospectus? 20, you know, what are the milestones and what are all of the, you know, what your ESG strategy is going to be in your prospectus, reverse engineering back, you know, how do you get there? Had, what, what have you got in place? And there's a lot on reporting obligations, for example. So that's my third one that feeds into ESG as well. Um, that, again, companies are educating your board, um, educating your compliance and your legal teams about reporting obligations post-IPO so you know what you're doing from day one um, is, is definitely um, something you can start doing good 18 to 24 months out. And, for example, um, if you come to London, for example, there's climate change, you know, TCFD, uh, climate risk reporting, um, you know, that that requires a significant data collection exercise internally that you need to be in a position to be doing um, by the time you come to market because it all needs to go into your annual report. So really thinking about having those processes in place, as I said, a lot of it will be relevant however you tend to, whatever strategic exit you or transaction you end up going towards. But that's something that people, again, underappreciate the time it takes to to start thinking about having in place. And I think lastly, I'll just say before I'll hand to you, Simon, is um, just getting due diligence ready, the scrutiny, which I think 
Simon already kind of touched on the scrutiny that you will get, um, both from the underwriting uh, banks, but also from um, the market and investors is, is significant. Um, and you don't want distractions. There's no reason for it. Let people focus on your equity story. Um, you know, really think about leveraging your previous funding rounds and all the materials and, and, and data and things that have been collected for that. You know, get your data room set up so it's ready and you can sort of, sort of you know, recycle to the extent it's relevant. Those materials, and again, save yourself a little bit of time and effort. So again, that's an exercise if you're thinking ahead, something that you could be doing 18 to 24 months. If you start thinking about that four to six months out, it puts enormous pressure on management. And then you're meant to try to be running the business at the same time as preparing for an IPO. So those are the things I think you really could be doing 18 to 24 months out. Um, I guess I should probably talk about the numbers. Um, first point, actually, and this should be obvious, but a lot of people overlook it. Numbers are critical in an IPO, yeah. right? An investor is going to assess you and value you based on numbers. So the first thing you need to do is work out, well, what numbers do we need? And that'll be your normal financials, you know, so your profit and loss accounts, your balance sheets, you're going to need all that. But typically, and especially for tech businesses, the numbers are often KPIs, other metrics that aren't from your core financials. Could be anything from number of customers, number of users, ARPUs, order values, you know, depending exactly what your business does. So you need to understand what numbers you're going to be in critically, understand what an institutional equity investor wants to see numbers-wise. And that may well differ from your current shareholders or how you as a management team yeah. currently look at your business. Because equity investors will look at certain key metrics and they'll look at how do those metrics in your business compare to other similar listed businesses in a peer group. That's a key part of the valuation. So one thing you need to do as early as possible is work out what numbers you need. The second thing you then need to do is go and get the numbers and ideally start capturing them live. But the one, the one thing I would say, where I see prices go wrong, which I think was the question at some point, is where there are fundamental problems with the numbers in the first place. And mm. basically the business hasn't got its house in order. Yeah. And you say, well, what do I need to do before I even start an IPO process? Is you as a business get your house in order with numbers. Yeah. Work out what you need, get them in order. Because I'm sure Freda will testament to this. If you do an early look meeting and present your business one way to the investor in the early look, and yeah. then you rock up six months later with a completely different set of criteria and numbers, mm. you know, it doesn't just knock your valuation, yeah. an investor will go, um, you clearly don't know how to run a business. Yeah. So, <laughs> it's a bit obvious, but number one, work out what you need, and then number two, make sure yeah. it's in That's the right gap, right? you know, yeah. consistent with your peer group, yeah. all the trends work out, etc., etc. Yeah, and, and there's nothing worse than, a, than an early look presentation, and the financials are in the appendix. Like they, they think that they can tell you the, the investment story without any numbers that back it up. It's an afterthought. It's an afterthought. Uh, that's not attractive at all. So numbers are critical. I did want to check whether we had any questions in the audience. Uh, right, thank you very much. Seems like... Um, Would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, I will. My name is Kofi. Kofi also Ishira. I'm from Ghana. Um... I run a company called Insano. So I founded Insano about a decade ago, and we've bootstrapped right from the ground up into about eight markets in Africa. And um, so our story is not typically your fundraising type all the way to um, a Series A, Series B, and an IPO, and so on. I have two questions for the panel. 
my first question is with valuation. The reason why we had to bootstrap, um, partly, is because I had difficulty with the valuation um, formula that the various um, institutions that sought to invest when we started um, were applying. So I kept fighting them, and um, you know, it ended up not um, materializing into into um, into investments. So we've bootstrapped. We are very comfortable. What we have decided to do now is to expand, well, do an expansion program into the UK and one IPO. So my question really is with entities that have not, and I'm sorry, if, if this has already been answered, I'm sorry, I came in quite late. So my story is such that we have not had to do any fundraising. We are very profitable. Um, we process payments for banks and mobile money companies and remittance companies across eight markets in Africa. Um, we're doing typically two billion week on week, um, USD week on week, <laughs> and um, um, I I had you Ariel on, on on the requirements, and that's the eighteen to twenty four months. My, my my critical question is how does how does we not um, haven't done any fundraising affect our via well <laughs> our attractiveness towards an IPO. Um, and I guess the second question will be, um, prior to an IPO, um, what can we do about the valuation that VCs apply to tech companies? Uh, because I have difficulty with a number of um, valuations I've seen in the space, in the ecosystem, and without mentioning any particular country or any particular name, some of the valuations are outrageous. So there's, there's a particular fintech company, for example, which is just a payment processor, similar to what we do, but the valuation is larger than, say, for example, MTM Mobile Money's valuation. And it makes absolutely no sense. So I am very concerned about that valuation, and I'd like the panel to deal with that for me. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, I can start with the, the, the not the valuation of, of whatever unnamed company, yeah. but in terms of of you bootstrapping over the last ten years and and not taking any pre seed to Series C money, that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter to somebody somebody who's investing in companies taking them private to IPO. We've seen many companies that have not <laughs> raised any money. It's literally been the founders' cash or friends and family and maybe five years later, three years later, or ten years later, they, they, they want to IPO. It, 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 it doesn't affect your attractiveness to the market at all. Yeah, I mean, I would add to that. I'd say I, I completely agree with that. What I would say, though, is uh, that, I mean, on the positive side, it actually sometimes is, you know, evidence um, around the management team's capability of actually, you know, being a judicious, um, financially, disciplined. Fi financially <laughs> disciplined management team. And, and that goes a long way, right, in convincing folks like Frida to, to invest. That said, I would say for an African business... Um, listing internationally, the bar is always higher. I mean, I think let's be all yeah. frank and honest. And uh, as such, it sometimes would be, I think, additive to have a well-known institution on your cap table prior to IPO uh, to provide some sort of additional endorsement. I mean, that could be prior to IPO, it could be as part of the IPO process as a cornerstone or anchor investor, uh, just to give a little bit more kind of 
a, f- a further stamp on, on the validity of your business. Um, I think on the second question on valuation, um, I mean, I think ultimately <laughs> valuation is in, the, is, in, is in the eye of the beholder. And, uh, you know, um, uh, I think Arsene Wenger is very well uh, quoted to say, you know, everyone thinks their wife is, is, is the most beautiful person <laughs> in the room. So I think that probably summarizes how you, but, you know, the, the market context is, is also important, right? And um, you had obviously a situation two years ago where growth was the most important thing right no one was looking at profitability and therefore people were willing to pay for you know very large multiples for growth stories on the premise that these businesses will grow into the multiple and you know eventually become profitable and you know there are obviously many examples of that happening very successfully with you know a lot of the big tech companies over the years in the US in particular uh, but now we're in a market where profitability is, is is important, right? At least a part of profitability that people can buy into. So, uh, and valuation levels, multiples, headline numbers have come down. So I think mm-hmm. market environment is, is important in, in that context. Just to add to that, I love the question, by the way, echo everything that Freda and Tuba have said. During my time as a banker, I probably spent more time managing founders' expectations down because... Um, Local Glow Phoenix Core do a great job, but you know Tiger Core Two, SoftBank, some of these funds have got carried away with valuations. We spent a long time sort of managing our expectations. It's great and refreshing to meet you know, a founder who's you know, probably thinking you know, a bit more realistically about about, about life. And um, I think you know going out, you know, spending time with, with bankers, with analysts, getting you know, views on okay, what's the right way to look at this business? Who are the who are the peers? Um, will be a helpful exercise. Um, and, you know, that ends up with doing a private placement round, bringing some pre-IPO money, doing a cornerstone um, before an IPO. Um, yeah, but both can work. And, um, you know, we would love to, love to chat. That's really exciting. I, I do think there is a... And there's, I'm going to give you a cautionary tale from 2021, actually, in a very African context. But it's really important for you as businesses to be realistic on valuation. Mm-hmm. You know, speak to Tuba and get advice from everybody on it, but you've got to have your own perspective. And the reason I say this is in, in 2021, there weren't many African businesses IPOing into London, and there should have been plenty. But what most, and this is regional scale African businesses that were looking at IPO did in 2021, was they all got pulled into the US, and they thought, oh, the streets of Wall Street are gold. And the reason they got pulled in was huge valuation promises, quite often uh, from SPACs, so not necessarily direct um, IPOs, but from SPACs. And they all, instead of coming to London, said, no, I'm going to the US. And I started saying, I don't think you're going to get that valuation. Mm. They said, well, what do you know, Simon? You're an accountant. You know, so off they went, spent, in many cases, millions of dollars on SPAC deals. And ultimately, two things happened. Number one, they learned the hard way that US investors, in reality, don't have a very good understanding of the African continent. Therefore, a lot it couldn't even get meetings when they wanted them. So therefore, SPAC investors were taking their money out. They couldn't get the pipe. Or when they did get the meeting, the discount for the geography that US investors wanted to apply was huge. So ultimately, the deals weren't getting done. And actually, a lot of those businesses that tried SPAC deals in 21 are now waiting for the London markets and global markets to recover. And we'll see them on London now. Yeah. So I think... Be realistic. You know, you, you may get someone in a very nice suit coming and telling you, "Yes, you're worth 
10 times more than you thought you would and it's Mr. Big on Wall Street with a SPAC or whatever it is. You've got to be realistic. Ultimately, it's an investor who's going to buy your business. Yeah. Yeah, I think be... yeah should we get the slide up? Um, yeah. I don't know if we could get the valuation slide up. It'd be uh, remiss of me not to talk about valuation, <laughs> um, you know, UK versus US differences, but um, we've done a lot of analysis on this and... Um, the number of arguments I've had with VCs, with journalists, with economists about who just quote PE ratios back to me and say, hey, Neil, look at this PE ratio in the States and look at what it is in the UK. Uh, that's the wrong way to look at it, right? So um, here's, a, here's a really easy framework. So across the x-axis, we're adding growth as a percentage to the margin. Take your pick. You could pick EBIT, you could pick free cash flow, you name it. But that's essentially the cost of that growth. So let's say you're growing 100%, but you're burning 40, you'd land at 60, right? And then on the y-axis, you've got a, um, a multiple. Again, you could choose, take your pick. What's most applicable to you know, your sector? Is it revenue? Is it EBITDA, et cetera? If we go to the next slide, and what we try to do here is find like-for-like -like peers, right? Um, so we touched on Helios I IHS before. The better company in terms of fundamentals ought to get the higher valuation and that's what we see in this case if we flip if you move on um you know wise versus remitly same thing might argue wise deserves you know a slightly higher multiple than where it where it is currently but it's 2023 if we keep on moving um you know right move great success story in the uk um compared to co-star zillow in the states there's a reason the right move gets a gets a premium here if we keep on going um same for auto trader if you keep on going um, here's a scenario where it doesn't work. You know, Dark Trace is in the UK. Um, CrowdStrike uh, is in the States. The, the logic works here. Better companies getting the higher valuation, not necessarily in the UK. If we go on to the next page, same for Deliveroo. This came up a lot with the press, right? They started off wanting DoorDash's valuation. Will Shu's spoken about this. There were some you know, mistakes made at that IPO. I think if they'd been a bit more reasonable when they started out, um, you know, maybe they'll be in a, in a better place. And you know, look, DoorDash is a markedly is very different business, and I think mean, that plays out in the, in the fundamentals it has. If we, if we go on one more, um, and it's not just tech, right? You can run this. We've looked at Shell, we've looked at Tesco, we've looked at um, you know other companies as well. So I, I really encourage. We hear this rhetoric that oh, you're just going to get a better price in the valuation. There's more money. Really question that and liquidity. Come and speak to us. Speak to the advisors here. I think um, you know the, the, it, it's it doesn't make sense, right? If there's more US capital in London than UK capital. Investors are not stupid. They're global. They'll find the better businesses wherever they are in, in, in the world. And you know, in, in London, people actually get Africa. Right? We've had you know, 111 uh, African companies come through over the years. We want to see more, right? Really excited about Cab. It's going to be our, our first you know, tech story um, for, from Africa. Um, huge excited about that. And uh, that's in two weeks' time. It'll be interesting to hear from all of you. What do you think the IPO prospects are or any advice you have, final advice you have for the founders sitting in the room today? Uh, maybe I'll, I'll kick off. Um, look, I think uh, the IPO market is, is something, you know, is an area I've spent uh, most of my career and I continue to be very passionate about that route being uh, an important part of the you know, capital formation cycle for uh, every company, particularly companies in, in Africa. I think what excites me the most is that one of the biggest challenges, and actually you probably saw in 
um, the previous slides uh, on some of the performance of some of the company African companies in the US and the UK. Uh, the biggest challenge for all of them, uh, those companies uh, at IPO and after IPO, has been that uh, there's ultimately a finite pool of investors that are dedicated towards African um, African businesses in the international markets. Uh, so what is absolutely critical in any IPO is that an African IPO. Uh, in the absence of a local investor base, is that you're able to attract um, investors beyond the frontier market investors, emerging market investors, and those that are relevant to your sector. And uh, I think what's very exciting is that um, the African tech space is already doing that in the private market. And there's a lot, uh, there's, there's a lot of, um, I certainly have strong belief that we'll be able to attract uh, the global tech investors in, um, in, a, in a public market context, um, just, just given the opportunity uh, that there is uh, in a global context. So that's very exciting. I mean, I'm, I have to say I'm excited about the prospects of seeing African companies um, float on aim. Um, um, definitely in the tech space. I think we need a new narrative because in the beginning when, when African companies came to float our name, it was mainly the resource and mining companies that we saw. Uh, you know, Africa has gone through a massive renaissance and this is a new narrative that we can put out there about the growth of Africa um, without it just being resource and mining. So I'm excited about the possibility of that and I hope that more of you consider an, an AIM listing um, because there is money in AIM. There are funds out there that would invest in, in African uh, companies. You know, we have to, as, as we've talked about, there's always this Africa seem more, as more risky, but that shouldn't, you shouldn't be afraid of that. It just gives you a chance to actually just tell a different story and be more prepared than other companies, which is a good thing. So um, I can't wait to see what Neil has in store for me <laughs> in the next year or so. Now, I'm hugely excited by the opportunities for African businesses coming to the markets. I mean, the growth potential for Africa and for African businesses is huge. And there aren't many other, I don't think there are any other continents in the world that are offering that right now, that growth opportunity. So now's the time. And I think we will see a lot of African businesses coming to London in the next 18 months or so. You know, we're, we're certainly busy. That's why we have a dedicated team to it. You know, um, but I would say also do... I'll go back to what I said earlier, do, do you recognise it's a big undertaking for a business? But come and speak to us all early. You know, we don't charge for a conversation. <laughs> I echo all of the sentiments, so hard to say anything um, different. I, you know, I guess I'm really excited about tech in London. And, you know, really that we are just are a destination, everything that's, you know, the focus on trying to attract more tech companies, keep more of the homegrown tech companies in the UK and London being a real preferred IPO destination for tech companies in particular and from, from across the world and particularly the world-class tech companies that are emerging on the continent as well. That's what I'm really excited about. Uh, I share the enthusiasm, right? We've got some globally relevant companies here, Goodwin, Deloitte, um, BAML, Octopus have built some fantastic companies o over the years. You know, and like me, um, you know, we've got a vested interest in, in the continent. We want to see you know, more companies do well. Frankly, if there's not been that many IPOs or, or exits, frankly, right? But come and speak to us. Speak to as many people as you can. And um, we're here to help you, you know, succeed. Um, next year, we're going to be agnostic at London Stock Exchange between public and private um, markets. What that means is that historically, where we couldn't help you on that 
on that scale up journey, we, we we're so much better positioned to do. And you're going to have choices, right? Aims re- really relevant, as is um, you know funds like Phoenix Court, who could be hopefully playing in our on our flow and um, intermittent trading venue propositions. Well, thank you very much. To hear our latest episodes, please subscribe to our channel on your favorite podcast app. You can also visit africatechsummit.com for our upcoming events and news.